Shalom, and thank you for listening to the weekly teaching from Nachamu Ami. It's our honor that you've chosen to participate virtually, and we hope that this lesson will be an inspiration in your daily walk. We'd love to hear from you with a comment, a prayer request, or questions you might have. We believe the mission and message of Messianic Judaism is something the world needs now. If you enjoy these teachings, would you consider financially supporting the work of Nachamu Ami by visiting our website at www.makeandmessianic.com and clicking the Give Online button in the upper right corner. Thank you and enjoy the message. Today, uh, who can tell me what parashah we're in? Shemot. Okay, Shemot. We're in the new book of Exodus. We just started Exodus this week. And so we are introduced to um, a new character um, that's going to be very extremely important here through the rest of the Torah. But I want to start by um, seeing if... See if you guys remember something. There's a game um, that's called Who Am I? And if you've ever played it, it's, it's good for mixers and parties and stuff like that. And what you do is you, you have somebody that writes a name of like a famous person uh, onto a piece of paper, and then it gets taped onto your, either your back or your forehead where you can't see it. Has anybody ever played that? No? Two of you? Three of you? Okay. <clears throat> And then the, the object of the game is to go around and to ask people questions about who you are. You're trying to find out who you are, okay? So this is almost like an amnesia type thing. No, um, th- But it's using famous persons where people can tell, you know, give you information on them. So Abraham Lincoln or whatever. You know, you can say, <clears throat> uh, am I still alive? And they would say no. Um, am I a, a real person or a fictional person? You know, or, or say, am I, am I a fictional person? They would say no. Um, you know, and so forth. And go through these questions, try to find out who you are. And so this game of who am I um, is sort of what we're playing a little bit today. We're going to do it in a little bit different way. So I'm going to sort of put that on hold. I put that little seed in your mind, and we're going to come back to it. Um, one of the other first things I want to do is I want to thank Rabbi Jonathan Sachs because um, I already developed my topic and was doing some research this week when I came across one of his articles and it was of the same title that I was using for mine and the title of this message is Who Am I? And uh, although he and I go in different directions with what we, what we end up, the results, um, there's a lot of overlap so I want to go ahead and give him credit <coughs> for some of that and information that I pulled there. So <clears throat> this week we're introduced to whom? In our Torah portion, Moshe, Moses, okay, and um, you know we hear we hear his name like once or twice more in the Torah, right? Yeah. Okay. One of the most one of the most um, prolific phrases that are used over and over again in the Torah, if you read the Torah and in, in the Hebrew, is after about chapter six of of uh, Exodus Shemot. We read over and over and over again, Vayomer Adonai uh, El Moshe, right? And the Lord spoke to Moses, Lemur, saying, okay? And so over and over and over, we hear this, that God is speaking to Moses. 
God speaks to him like nobody's business, okay? So let's talk about him. Let's talk a little bit about Moses' background. As you know, Moses was born a slave. He was born in the Egyptian um, slavery as a Hebrew. His, his parents saw immediately that there's something special about him. It says they saw that he was tov. Okay, what does tov mean? He is good. And so we don't have time to get into that, but there's a lot of significance about that and why that word was used. Um, but his parents hid him away, hid him away for a season. Um, they said he hid him away for about three months until they couldn't hide him anymore. And then what'd they do? His mother put him in a little basket, uh, put him into the Nile River, and he is found by Pharaoh's daughter and ends up being raised in the royal court albeit with his own mother to nurse him, right? I mean, he's, he's raised as a, until he's old enough to be weaned by his birth mother and then taken into the, the court, okay? <clears throat> now, we don't really know a whole lot about his, um, about his childhood, about his growing up. There's Midrash and things like that we can go to. But as far as the biblical text is concerned, we don't know a whole lot. And the next time, basically the next thing that we hear is that he's out one day and he, he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew servant. And what does he do? He's like, ah, oh, that's none of my business. Is that what he does? No, no, no. Okay. It, he, he has empathy. Okay. He has empathy for his Hebrew brothers and he has to stop what's going on. And so he attacks the Egyptian, ends up killing him, and he's, he, he's scared, you know, doesn't know what to do. He hides the body in the sand. Uh, it says the next day he went out and two Hebrew men were fighting, were quarreling and stuff like that. And two of his own brothers, and, and, and he called them on it. He's like, you don't need to be doing that. You're, you're brothers, you know? And one of them turns to him and says, what are you going to do? Kill me like you killed the Egyptian? So his secret, one, his secret's out. Two, how did it get out? Because the only one that saw was evidently the man who he rescued. And he told other people. But in this passage, there's some things going on that I want us to look at. So if you would open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 3. Um, and I'll give you this real quick. So between there and him fleeing for his life, and he runs, and, and you know the story, he, he flees to Midian, he rescues the daughters of um, Jethro, and, and Jethro, you know, he has multiple names, um, and he has seven names according to the Torah, and um, he rescues uh, his daughters. He's given one of his, of his daughters in marriage, Zipporah, and he marries Zipporah, and Jethro is a priest of Midian. He stays there. He's happy. He's content, right? 40 years. One day, he's out shepherding the flock of his father-in-law, and what does he see? He sees a bush that's on fire, but it's not burning up, okay? Gets his attention. He's turned aside. So you guys know all that. But curiosity made him turn aside from shepherding, shepherding to investigate. And from that point on, his life is never the same. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So if you would, 
open to Shemot or Exodus chapter 3. I'm going to read um, these 12 verses to get us on the same page. We're going to get the context of what we're going to be talking about here. Moses was shepherding the sheep of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. He guided the sheep far into the wilderness, and he arrived at the mountain of God <clears throat> toward Horeb. I'm not going to talk about this, but that is an interesting note right there, that it already calls it the mountain of God, even though we don't know of anything that has happened to that point yet. An angel of Hashem, or angel of the Lord, appeared to him in a blaze of fire from amid the bush. He saw, and behold, the bush was burning in the fire, but the bush was not consumed. Moses thought, I'll turn aside now, and I'll look at this great sight. Why will the bush not be burned? In other words, hey, I can't figure this out. I need to go investigate this. Hashem saw that he turned aside to see, and God called out to him from amid the bush. Catch this. God saw that he turned aside to see. Why doesn't it say, and God just spoke to him in the midst of the bush? Okay? It's, it's telling us that Moses' action precipitated what God wanted to do. Moses did something that God noticed. He took note of, and he began to speak to Moses. And he said, Moshe, Moshe. And he replied, Hineni, here I am. He said, God said, do not come closer to here. Remove your shoes from your feet, for the place upon which you stand is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father. I'm going to read the Hebrew here. It says, Avayomer Anohi Elohei Avicha, Elohei Abraham, Elohei Yitzchak, Elohei Yaakov. Okay? And so God doesn't say, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He individualizes each and every one. He says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. How did Moses reply? Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to gaze towards God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the affliction of my people that is in Egypt, and I have heard its outcry because of its taskmasters, for I have known its sufferings. I shall descend to rescue it from the hand of Egypt and to bring it up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusites, and the Termites. No, no, that's no, not in there. <clears throat> Sorry, I got a little carried away there. And now behold, the outcry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. And now go, and I shall dispatch you to Pharaoh, and you shall take my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now this is what I want to draw your attention to, verse 11. This is what we're going to be focusing on today. Moshe replied to God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should take the children of Israel out of Egypt. I want you to catch that. Who am I that you've called me to do this? And he, God, said, for I shall be with you and this is your sign that I have sent you. When you take the people out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain. So <clears throat> Moshe responds to God when God calls him to do a task for him. He responds in Hebrew, Mi anohi, mi anohi. Why me? Why? Who am I? Right? He literally says, who am I? But it's basically what we would say, why me? Why pick me? 
because he doesn't believe he's worthy of the task that he's been given. Why should the God of the universe choose him? He doesn't have what it takes. He isn't perfect. He knows his flaws. A similar response is given by others who are called as well. If you look in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5, when the Lord appears to the prophet Isaiah for the first time, <clears throat> Isaiah's response was, woe to me. It's like, oh my goodness, I'm going to die basically, right? Woe to me, I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. When the Lord appears to Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 6, Jeremiah has a similar response. He says, I don't even know how to speak. I'm too young. He wasn't a child. He was an adult. But he felt that he was not qualified to be a spokesman on behalf of God. What about Jonah when he was called to Nineveh? What did he do? He ran in the opposite direction, right? So I think some of us can relate to that as well. Um, the seventh Lubavitcher Rebbe, uh, Rabbi Menachem Schneerson of Blessed Memory, he said something that I, I think is very powerful that I want us to catch. <clears throat> he said, birth is God saying, you matter. In other words, if you're here, if you're alive, you have a purpose. You have a difference to make in this world. <clears throat> That's why the Lord never really answers Moses the question of why. Moses said, who am I? Why me, in other words? <clears throat> but the Lord doesn't even respond to that. The Lord tells him, um, he answers another question of his, but he, do he doesn't say, you know, this is why, okay? So with his lack of response, God is telling Moses, why not? Isn't this the reason I've created you? Okay? So Moses is, the, is um, well, there's, there's few before him, but the, the, after him, there are many heroes in the Bible. And all these, of these he, heroes are human, just like me and you. Okay? They've got flaws and weaknesses just like you and me. They struggle with self-identity and self-worth. They struggle with knowing their destiny. They doubt their own abilities. At some point, they want to give up. Some even want to die. Do you remember when um, Elijah had just slaughtered the prophets of Baal? What happens directly after that? He goes running with his tail between his legs, running from Jezebel. He says, she's going to kill me. Okay? It's like, you just killed 400 prophets, dude. It's like, why are you running from a lady? So, yeah, she's mean, okay? She's mean. <clears throat> um, the book of James tells us that, um, let's see, is it Elijah? It says Elijah was a prophet, but he was a man, just like us. And through the prayers, through his prayers, rain was withheld, right? But he was just like us. These guys are all what I would call reluctant heroes. And if you've watched any movies, read any Marvel, stuff like that, a lot of times the hero of the story is reluctant, right? 
They, they don't just go out there running off and, yeah, it's my job and all that kind of stuff. They're sort of pushed into what they've got to do because they don't recognize that they have what it takes to do what they're supposed to. So my question is, doesn't God see this? Doesn't he know that these people have flaws, that they have self-doubt, they have struggles with their identity, their self-worth and all that kind of stuff? But why does he choose them anyway? Why, is it, why doesn't he choose someone with an unshakable sense of purpose and destiny? So even worse for Moses being in this situation, he's already sort of stepped up to the plate once, right? He, he tried to defend his brother and everything goes south on him. It goes bad, turns bad. He ends up having to flee for his life, okay? And so he already feels he has one strike against him. There's a popular teaching in this, that, that people teach that the Bible says that says God will not put on you more than you can bear. Have you heard that? Okay, where is that? Nowhere. Nowhere, right? Now, it's based off of a misunderstanding of a passage. There is a passage in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that says no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted or tested beyond your ability. <clears throat> but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it, okay? So this is dealing with temptation and testing. God will always provide a means of release of escape, okay? But as far as putting more on us than we can handle, when it comes to a task that he's assigned us, he actually intentionally puts on us more than we can handle. Why? So that we can rely on him. So that he will be glorified in it and through it. And the task that each of us are given is larger than we can bear on our own. I'm going to read a couple examples um, of how I referred to uh, the Rebbe uh, just a moment ago and how he used this principle to push others to reach their potential, okay? And so there was a, um, a, uh, a guy by the name of Rabbi Moshe Yitzchak Hecht, and he was a um, Chabad Shaliach uh, in New Haven. Okay, it was 1974, and he was just feeling overwhelmed. He had way too much on his plate, couldn't handle anything. He was dropping stuff and everything, and it just having all kinds of problems keeping things running. You know, the thing of spinning too many plates and so forth. Um, he wrote to the Rebbe and laid out all of his professional and spiritual problems on the Rebbe's lap, appealing to him to help, okay? But instead of acceding to Hecht's request or even expressing sympathy for his sense of dejection, <clears throat> the Rebbe took the discussion in an altogether different direction. <clears throat> this is what he told him. He wrote back and said, <clears throat> I've already done as you suggested. So he said, I need help, right? Send me some help. He said, I sent 
to New Haven, to this place where you are, a rabbi Moshe Yitzchak Hecht. It's apparent from your letters, both this and the previous one, that you don't know him yet. And you don't know the strengths that were given to him. You should at least try to get to know him now, and then everything will immediately change the mood, the trust in God, and your daily joy. Okay? Another interesting story. This uh, 30-year-old man, his name was Henry Weinreb. Let me make sure I got his first name correct. No, Svi Hirsch Weinreb, excuse me. And um, he, he was about 30 years old. He was already trained as a rabbi, trained as a psychologist. He was, he was you know, trying to figure out where he was supposed to land in life. He, should he pursue being a rabbi? Should he pursue being a psychologist? Um, should he do other things? He's already loaded himself up, gone full force. He was teaching Talmud classes. He was teaching some uh, classes at the college, I think. Um, and so he was working on his, he had completed his doctorate in psychology, working in the public school system. And um, it said in the midst of his great busyness, Weinreb confronted an early midlife crisis. Okay, so he's trying to figure out what to do. And a friend of his recommended writing to the Rebbe or, spending some, or going to the Rebbe and asking his advice. Okay, and so he was really as most of us would be, you know, when we have to ask somebody else for advice, it's like, I really don't know wanting them, want them to know that I'm weak. You know, I don't want them to know that I need help. Okay. And so what he does was he calls up the Rebbe's office and he doesn't tell who he is. He tries to maintain anonymity. And, um, the, the guy, when he asks who's calling, the, the rabbi, Rebbe's assistant, um, Rabbi Hordakov, uh, Hordakov, he says, a Jew from Maryland. Okay, that's all he says. He doesn't give names, nothing. And so Hordakov is with the Rebbe at the time. He repeats this to the Rebbe. Um, and, and then Weinreb told Hordakov about the several questions he wished to discuss with the Rebbe <clears throat> involving both career decisions and matters of faith. As he went on for some time about these issues, uh, Hordakov related this information to the Rebbe and paraphrased his words. And then it says, before Weinreb could pin down a date for the meeting, he heard the Rebbe call out in the background, tell him there is a Jew who lives in Maryland that he can speak to. And he, he was speaking in Yiddish, Der Yid heist Wingrab. Okay? His name is Weinrab. Weinrab. Okay? Hordakov said, did you hear what the Rebbe said? And Weinrab heard, but he was in shock. As he had carefully avoided saying his name, and this is long before caller ID, he assumed that he had probably misheard the Rebbe. So he told Hordakov, no, I didn't, I didn't hear what he said. So he repeated it back. Tell him that is that there is a Jew who lives in Maryland that can speak to him. His name is Weinreb. So <laughs> Weinreb was a little confused. He said, uh, but my name is Weinreb. And <laughs> says, now it was Rabbi Hordakov's turn to look shocked. He, but not the Rebbe. When Hordakov repeated aloud what Weinreb said, the Rebbe simply responded, if that's the case, then he should know that sometimes a person needs to speak to himself. Okay? 
And so <clears throat> that moment of encouragement changed his life forever. He went on to be a highly distinguished professional, to have a highly distinguished professional career, <clears throat> which included serving as the executive vice president of the Orthodox Union. You may have heard of that. Um, and as the editor-in-chief of the Koran Talmud, the English-language translation of the Steinsaltz Talmud. Okay? So <clears throat> he, he had this inspiration that, that totally changed his life, that realized that sometimes we have to just do what it takes and listen to what God has already spoken to us. Okay? There was one more. Okay. So, yeah, really. Um, there was a, um, a young... Let me find this real quick. Okay. Okay. Um, a gentleman by the name of Yitzchak Mayor Garari. He was granted a meeting with the rabbi, with the Rebbe, when he was 14. Okay, he arrived at the Rebbe's office with his father, Rabbi Zalman Garari, one of the most prominent of the movement's prominent uh, figures. And the Rebbe gently asked the young man, why have you come here with your father? You have to be your own man. Now you have to take care of yourself and not rely on your father. From that point on, Garari reports, when his father would raise an issue with the Rebbe regarding his son, the Rebbe would say, let him come and talk about it himself, okay? So this is a difference between Judaism and most other um, faiths too, is that Judaism, we have a tradition of bar and bat mitzvah, okay? And they've, we've, we've watered them down in recent times as well. But that tradition is supposed to help, you know, push the 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 young men and young women out of the nest, so to speak, right? Supposed to help them to become and be accepted into adulthood, to live up to their potential and do what they need to do to begin serving the community and to be transformed so that they can take on the responsibility and become a man or, or a woman, right? But unfortunately, <clears throat> in our culture, <clears throat> A lot of that just boils down to let's have a big party, okay? But traditionally, when a boy has a bar mitzvah, from that point, he's included in the men of the community. He counts for a minion. He is able to come up to the Torah and participate and read from the Torah. He, he, he has responsibility within the community. But unfortunately, we, we don't do that much. So... In the first two examples, the Rebbe wanted to bring out in each of these men abilities that they didn't recognize, they didn't realize they, that they, they possessed. And so what I want us to get in this is that we, we often limit ourselves in our ability to carry out our divine tasks because of self-doubt or believing that life is too difficult. In the, this last example, sometimes we're limited by others. In this example here, the young man was limited by his father. His father wasn't bad. His father was a rabbi. He loved him. He, and that's why he wanted to bring him to the rabbi and meet him and, and establish a relationship, all that kind of stuff, and get guidance. But, but he, 
forgot, in a sense, that he's supposed to be launching his child into adulthood and having him take responsibility for himself. And I think we cripple <coughs> our children a lot of times like that. <coughs> we need to seek discernment as to whether, we are, whether or not we're limiting ourselves, we're limiting others, or if others are limiting us. So where does this strength come from <coughs> that we can rise to the occasion? Yeshua drew his strength with his spiritual connection to his father. And I think that's the example that we all need, right? When Yeshua's disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat, is at the point where he was meeting with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, because he hadn't eaten all day, he replied and said this. He says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And that's what I tell my children when they come in my office and I'm snacking on something they didn't know I had. <clears throat> but the disciples replied, and they, they started talking to one another. They said, has, has somebody brought him something to eat? But Yeshua replied to them, and, and this is the important part, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. How many of you guys have ever been, I mean, it's good if you can walk in this every day of your life, but have you ever been in a situation that you're, you're there and you're a part of something, you're doing something, you're accomplishing something, you're helping somebody or whatever, and you're just like, you know, I think I've found what I'm supposed to be doing. And you just really, it's like, this is it. This is who I'm supposed to be. This is where I'm supposed to be, and so forth. We found this. My family found this when we came to Macon, right? We've been searching and wandering for years, and God brought us to Macon, and we are fulfilling the role that God has called us to, and we've never felt better in our lives. I'm very, very blessed to be a part of such a loving congregation. Thank you. Sometimes we're reluctant to begin something God has called us to do because we believe it's too big. This is too big. We can't do it. We'll never be able to complete it. I can't finish this. But we don't have to be able to complete it. We have to understand that. We only have to start it. We only have to fully engage in what we're supposed to be doing. Because, think about it, not even Yeshua has finished his task and his purpose, right? He still has work to do. He still needs to return and complete his mission. <clears throat> so why do we think that we have to do that ourselves, right? The Mishnah quotes Rabbi Tarfon in Pekevot, Tractate of Ot, saying, the day is short, the task is great, the laborers are lazy, the wage is abundant, and the master is urgent. Okay? Can you relate to that? We need to get busy. Sounds something like what our master said, right? 
says, when he saw the crowds in Matthew 9, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Now, does this mean going out and, and trying to, you know, evangelize and make people into Christians? No, not necessarily. This, this means that we are supposed to be doing the work that God called us to, and it should be affecting the lives of others, and it should be kingdom-based, right? We should be transforming, helping to transform the lives of others, drawing them into the kingdom, and allowing that to establish God's kingdom in our lifetime. Somewhere inside each one of us is a reluctant hero. We need to be quiet, just long enough so we can hear the call from on high. I want to ask a few questions. What is our purpose? What is your purpose? What has Hashem brought us into the world to do? Why was I born? Why did God place me into this reality? Is it to accumulate debt and work 40 plus hours a week to try to pay it off? Hey, let's, let's all do that. Oh, we already are. Um, but that's not our purpose. That's how we get sidetracked, right? Is it to try to get in as much entertainment as possible? Seems like it in the United States. I mean... The uh, movie theaters and the sports arenas make more money than I don't even know what. And another thought is that the pharmaceutical industry trying to make people happy is a big one too because we have so much depression. This is why, this is why in the United States people struggle with depression and people are constantly trying to be entertained because we have raised generations now without a purpose. And so they feel that, we feel that, with things that try to make us feel good. So how do we cope? First thing is don't give up. You know, we've all heard that voice that has called us to do something, but then we've become overwhelmed and we give up. But learn the lesson from the burning bush. When God encountered Moshe, he did it through this burning bush. What's up with that? Why didn't he just like do the big Sinai thing or, or, or whatever? You know, why a burning bush? And our sages tell us it wasn't just a, a bush. It wasn't a you know, uh, a silver bell or a whatever. It wasn't, uh, you know, a nice, you know, beautiful, colorful bush with flowers and, and whatever. It was a thorn bush, okay? So you have this thorn bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. So what's the image and what can we learn from that? The thorn bush one of the things that we look at this is a thorn bush represents Israel and their mission. But it also represents us as disciples of Yeshua. Sometimes we feel like a thorn bush on fire. But we need to remember that although the bush was aflame, it was not burn up. We will suffer 
challenges. We will suffer the heat of this world, but we will not be consumed. The thorn bush was not burned up, and it wasn't burnt out. Yeshua told his disciples, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden light. Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30. Paul tells his disciples at Philippi, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. Basically, I, I've been in the worst situation, I've been in the best situation. And in, every, in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And here's the, the, the money phrase right here. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. We have to look at our master, our, our Messiah, Yeshua, our rabbi, and draw strength from him. We may be burning our candles at both ends, but we are assured that we will not be consumed. Even before God called Moses at the burning bush, he tested Moshe. Have you been tested? If not, watch out. When Moshe saw the Egyptian beating one of the Hebrew brothers, he stood up for him. It says, one day when Moshe had grown up, we read this passage here, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, saw an Egyptian beating Hebrew and one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Okay? But the Hebrew behind this, he saw no one, is literally ki'ain ish, which can mean there was no one, but it literally means because there was no man. Because there was no man. And so he, he struck the Egyptian because there was no man. There was no one else to stand up for his brother. Only him. There was not another man available to defend the Hebrew slave. So Moses rose to the occasion. He became a man, not because of violence, but because he acted on behalf of another human being made in the image of God when nobody else would. Rabbi Hillel taught his disciples in a place where there's no men strive to be a man. I vote 2-6. Maybe he had Moses in mind when he wrote that, when he taught that. As the popular expression goes, evil triumphs when good men do nothing. So all of us are put into situations that give us an opportunity to forsake complacency and become a man. Now, ladies, this is just means a person, a real person. If you've heard the expression, <clears throat> he's a mensch, or you know that, that's a mensch, whatever, that's a Yiddish expression that means a person. And that means like a whole person. You're not lacking of anything. You have become who and what you're supposed to be. So when we say <clears throat> try to be a man, that means fulfill your role. If you look to your left and if you look to your right and you don't see a man, then your time has come. Be a man. Don't just look for somebody else to step up to the plate. Who am I? Who are you? 
Who am I? I'm the very one the Lord created for this time and this place to serve this need. Who are you? I would argue that you have the same answer, but in your own context. What are you supposed to be doing? Look around you. See where there is no man and where there should be one. And that's where you need to be. Shabbat Shalom.